Today's, today's scripture reading is from Numbers chapter 1, verses 20 to 30. This can be found on page 93 of your Pew Bibles. Numbers chapter 1, verses 20 through 30. From the descendants of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, all the men 20 years old or more who were able to serve in the army were listed by name, one by one, according to the records of their clans and families. The number from the tribe of Reuben was 46,500. From the descendants of Simeon, all the men 20 years old or more who were able to serve in the army were counted and listed by name, one by one, according to the records of their clans and families. The number from the tribe of Simeon was 59,300. From the descendants of Gad, all the men 20 years old or more were able to serve in the army were listed by name according to the records of their clans and families. The number from the tribe of Gad was 45,650. From the descendants of Judah, all the men 20 years old or more who were able to serve in the army were listed by name according to the records of their clans and families. The number from the tribe of Judah was 74,600. From the descendants of Issachar, all the men 20 years old or more who were able to serve in the army were listed by name, according to the records of their clans and families. The number from the tribe of Issachar was 54,400. From the descendants of Zebulun, all the men 20 years old or more who were able to serve in the army were listed by name, according to the records of their clans and families. The number from the tribe of Zebulun was 57,400. Now, from time to time, people will remark to me that this is an academic church or that our Bible teaching and our Bible studies are academic. And now, I know you mean this as a high compliment because, after all, this is Boston where so many of you have come from around America and around the world to get an academic education for which you pay, or your parents pay, fifty to $60,000 a year. And if you're not in college yet, there's a reason your parents live in Lexington, to get you an excellent, or some of you, or Acton, or Weston, or Newton, to get you the best education they can afford, and they pay $100,000 or more extra for the house, just because it comes with these schools. So I know we view academics very highly, and... And we wouldn't want to take our faith with less seriousness than we take school or career. So I know that it really matters to you that that we be an academic teaching church. But I, you know, there's a little bit of uh, flattery going on here because we're not really academic. We miss some essential aspects of what it is to be academic. We have no required essays. We have no exams. I mean, there's a big exam at the end of time, but we have no intermediate exams. You don't risk, you know, it's not like you're going to take a test and we're going to say, oh, you failed, get out. You know, we, we don't kick people out of church for failing. But for today, just for, to, to improve this gap, 
you know, to, to prove this, improve this inadequacy just for today, well, starting today, at least, we're going to try and take a stab at this. Maybe we will. Okay, we're going to have a pop quiz. Now, in your bulletin, now, if you're a visitor, you're exempt. If you haven't been here for the last, you know, if you haven't been here 50% of the time for the last three months, you're exempt. But I'm serious, let's take a pop quiz. Now, over, over this whole year, we're going to be looking at the flow of thought, the meta-narrative, the flow of thought, the one story that goes throughout all of Scripture. And the story that goes throughout all of Scripture has three promises. And we've covered, we've talked about all three, but we've covered two of them so far. We've covered the first promise and we've covered part of the second. Now in your bulletin there are spaces to answer this question. And after, I'm going to have you swap with your neighbor to get it graded. So, and I'm sure because you're academic people in an academic setting, I'm sure you all brought pencils and pens and we're all set. But here's what you've got to do for this. Whoa, dog. What happened? There we are. Quit playing with that. Are you in the back doing that? Okay. <laughs> okay. You didn't see that. All right. So look. The pop quiz is this. It will only take a moment. And actually, there's a reason for this, okay? I mean, I'm, I'm playing with it, but there's a reason for this. Studies have shown, and this is important for your uh, school as well. For, studies have shown that no matter how many times I say this, you won't get it. And how, no matter how many times you look at it in your notes, you won't get it. The only way really to prepare, to, to, to learn something for an exam or for some kind of uh, recitation where you're responsible for it, the only way to learn something is to force yourself through flashcards, through questions, force yourself to make those connections in your brain. Somebody asks you a question and you have to figure out where you store that information and then how you can recall it. So this is really the only way to learn it. And by the time we're done with nine months, my goodness, you really need to know this. If you, by the time we're done with this series... You should be able to know the flow of thought throughout the Bible. So whenever you hear a sermon from anywhere in Scripture, you'll say, okay, this is what was going on, and I know how this fits in. So there's a serious dimension to this, too, even though we play. Okay, I'm going to give you 30 seconds. There's three promises we've looked at, and we've identified where they're found in the Bible, where the fulfillment of those promises is found. Three promises, the fulfillment of all three in the Bible, and you got 30 seconds. We have 30 seconds. You do it on your own. <laughs> okay. Now, because this is a church marked by grace, we also have an extra credit question. In this case, I give you half of it. Here's all the extra passages. Now the question is, what's the other half? Remember, God gave them promises, but God said to them, if we're going to be in relationship, there's got to be some reciprocation. What did God ask of them in reciprocation for this relationship? And if you notice the numbering, there's only two answers, and each answer appears twice. Okay, another 30 seconds.
What alone there? Come on. Okay, so let's see how we did. Swap your, give your, give your answers to the person sitting next to you so they can grade it for you. All right, let's see how we did. The three promises that we've looked at so far, these are the three promises that go out throughout the whole Bible and where we've looked at them so far. The first promise is descendants. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, next time I'll give you a chance to tell me. And the whole book of Genesis is only about producing descendants for Abraham. The second promise is... Oh, look at you. Yeah! Okay. Oh, I should have asked you. Where is that? Exodus. The first half of Exodus, that's land part one. Land is going to take you throughout the whole, most of the rest of the Old Testament. But part one starts in Exodus. What's the third promise? Blessing to the nations. And where do we find that? Mm, not so much everywhere. Where do we find it? Yeah, I got too many. Okay. <laughs> you guys made the mistake of sitting up front. Where do we find it? The promise of the nation. The blessing of the nations. Where do we find this? Acts chapter 1 and following. So it's the whole New Testament is about the blessing coming to the nations. All right, and the reciprocation. What does God ask of us, ask of his people? Two things. Give me one of them. Obey, Obey and the other one. Worship. Obey and worship. Okay? Now this is really takes us through the book of Leviticus. And today we're going into Numbers. But what I want to do is we're going to start with numbers and then we're going to work our way backwards depending on how much time we have, how far, how fast we go. What I really want to talk about is how does this apply to our lives? Because when we're looking at what the point of the Bible is, we always want to know how does this apply to my life? But if we ask the wrong question, we're going to be frustrated trying to find the answer. You see, the Bible is not so much about how God fits into my life. The Bible is more about how I fit into God's plan and purpose. And that's why we have to know this. Because God had a plan for descendants, for Israel. And God had a plan for land. And God had a plan for the blessing of the nations. And Scripture does talk about how God fits into my life. But oh, that's a secondary theme. The primary purpose behind Scripture is, how do I fit into God's purpose? And it really requires us to shift our orientation. You know, I, I pray the same way you pray. I start off every day typically praying for my family, most days. I pray for the prayer list that we put in the bulletin, to, for, to pray for the people in the church, and particularly those in ministry position. And it's really easy to forget to pray for God's purposes. 
And the risk is that what we're doing is, you know, we're inviting God to be like our pet dog, right? So, you know, you, you play around with the dog for a little while before you go off to school, then you go off to school or you go off to work and you work hard all day. And then you come home and maybe you take the dog out for a little walk and you play with him a little bit more and then you go do your homework or you do, go bring your, your work home from, and you spend more time on that. And, and so we fit God into our free spaces in our lives. And, and there's not a whole lot of free space, right? Because work requires and study requires a lot of time. And then if you've got kids, they require a lot of time. And so God becomes a, something we fit into our free space in our lives. And, and what really God is saying to us throughout the whole of Scripture, the primary, the main point of all of Scripture is God has a purpose for this world. And he's trying to call us into his purpose. So the first thing we have to identify is how we fit into God's purposes. Now, last week, I was going to tie this sermon in with Richard and Rachel sharing, but we ran out of time. But Richard and Rachel shared about how they're tying their lives in with God's purpose. By maintaining their vocations, but shifting their location so that they can go to Taiwan and reach out to blue-collar workers. Now, the reality of Taiwan is that there's plenty of people who are Christians, evangelizing Christians, that are university-educated. But there's a phenomenon around the world throughout the last several hundred years is that where the university-educated come to faith, often the blue-collar, they, they, don't, they don't feel comfortable at, church, at elite churches. And so they often don't come to faith. There's a resistance. In Singapore, we saw it. Taiwan has it. Uh, England used to have it I mean, in the 1700s. It's really hard to get both classes into church because the ruling class tends to rule the church like they rule the workplace, and the working class doesn't feel comfortable there. So Richard and Rachel would be going to uh, Taiwan, shifting their location, maintaining their same vocation, in order to see what they can do to further the purposes of God for the blue-collar workers in Taiwan. But as we've been talking together as a community about how we fit into the purposes of God, this is only one of the purposes that we're working with. It's keeping our vocation and shifting our location. Another purpose, this appears not to be working. Give me another click. There you go. Is choosing a vocation. You know, as we're talking about a community, what can we do to bring our lives into connection with the purposes of God? One is, as you head off to college, or as you're in college, this will be the easiest time in your lives to align your life, to figure out what, what God is inviting you to do with your skills and the needs of the world around you, to align your life with the purpose of God. It's the easiest time. You can do it later again, but it's disruptive. So the question is, what vocation can you use, given your abilities, that will be useful to God's purposes in the world? How can you use your vocation, if you're already working, right where you are, to be useful to God's purposes in the world? These are one of the questions we're trying to ask. And finally, sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. What might you do to change your vocation? and your location to be useful to God and his purposes in the world. 
And these are the questions that we're bringing to the text, or these are the questions that the text is posing to us. And we want to see how the biblical text responds to these issues. So just to illustrate here, um, this is, you know, the people on the left here, Lee and Diana, they're an example of keeping your same vocation and changing location. Because Lee and Diana took their professional skills and they moved to East Asia, where the needs are greater than they are in the U.S., the needs for Christian witness and engagement. And so they've gone and they've kept their vocation and they changed their location to be useful to God. And then Cindy Morrison with her four daughters. Uh, Cindy, they just got back yesterday from uh, East Asia. Now, Cindy uses her vocation in her location. She does uh, early intervention for special needs children and occupational therapy. So she uses her vocation in this location. And at the same time, occasionally, once a year, she goes off to East Asia and trains orphanage workers in dealing with special needs children. Then you have Ellen, who went on this trip, who chose her vocation through college in order to be useful to God and his purposes. And then you have Nate, who is considering changing his vocation and his location in order to be useful to God. So we have these four parameters. How can you align your lives with the purposes of God? By choosing a vocation if you're in college. By keeping the same vocation and the same location, but using your opportunities for God. By keeping the same vocation and changing your location to be useful to the purposes of God. And then by changing your vocation and your location. These are four ways that we can bring our lives into connection with God's purposes in the world. Here's the reason, or one of the reasons why we want to do this. Not only because there's needs in the world, but this is what Scripture speaks to. Scripture, primarily, Scripture speaks to God's purposes in the world and what I can do within those purposes. And that's what we're going to look at today is what Numbers says to this kind of issue. So when you want to apply the book of Numbers, or when you want to apply the book of Leviticus, or the book of Exodus, or the book of Genesis, or the book of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and Acts, it's not really about my private life. And whether God's going to help me pass this exam, or whether my kids are going to do well in school, or have happy lives. It's not really about, am I going to have enough money for retirement? It's not really about this annoying co-worker. Well, a little bit about the annoying co-worker, because that fits into the purpose of God. But it's not really about advancement at work. It's really about, what is God's purpose, and, and what can I do to contribute to that purpose? And then scripture applies to us as we try to align our lives with the purposes of God. And so I want to start with the book of Numbers and illustrate that. How we can apply scripture to our lives as our lives connect with the purposes of God. So turn with me to Numbers chapter 1. We'll take a look at it briefly and then we'll work our way back to the other passages. Numbers chapter 1. It's an interesting passage because it seems like it's totally hopeless. Numbers uh, chapter 1 is page 93 in your pew Bible. Moses and Aaron took these men whose names had been specified. He, he took some uh, co-workers. They called the whole community together. And on the first day of the second month, the people registered their ancestry by clans and families. The men 20 years old or more were listed by name one by one, as the Lord commanded Moses. And so he counted them in the desert of Sinai. 
from the descendants of Reuben, the firstborn son of Israel. All the men, 20 years old or more, who were able to serve in the army were listed by name, one by one, and there was 46,500 of them. And then from the tribe of Simeon, there was 59,300 of them. From the tribe of Gad, 45,650 of them. From the tribe of Judah, 74,600 of them. From the tribe of Issachar, 54,400. From the tribe of Zebulun, 57,400. And so forth and so on. Why? What did it matter to them? And what does it matter to us? Take a look at verse 20. All the men, 20 years old or more, who were able to serve in the army were listed one by one. Take a look at verse 45. All the Israelites, 20 years old or more, who were able to serve in Israel's army were counted according to their families. We've seen God's purpose in fulfilling the land. It's part one. Part one, God pulled them out of Egypt. God got them out of slavery and brought them into the wilderness. And now they're camped in the wilderness and God starts counting them. God tells them to count off. They count off tens of thousands at a time. Because what are they about to do? They're about to invade Canaan, the land that God promised them. They're about to go to war. They're counting the number of soldiers they have available, 20 years old and higher. They're registering for the draft. Now, this is something we don't experience in America anymore. But I was in the last batch of American males registered for the Vietnam War. Nobody from my year was called. But my brother, older brother, from his year, they were drafted. My year, they registered us because they were hoping to phase out the draft, but they weren't clear. And I can remember the emotions in our college dorm as we sat around for the lottery. These people were about to go to war. Some of them are going to die. They don't know who. But it sure gets your attention. And the question they have, obviously the first question they have is, am I going to be one of the ones that dies? Do you know what God tells them? He doesn't answer that question. See, we want God to be the pet dog in our lives. We want God to tell us about us and our families and our future and our welfare. And God doesn't tell them that. But God does tell them he has a purpose for them. He's told them they'll have this land, they'll have to fight for it, and some of them will die. So what hope does he give them? They have two questions. One is, individually, will I die? The other question is, will we succeed? You remember the story. Some of you know the story. They send spies into the land, and they look at the land, and they say, oh, this is a great land. But they got big people in that land. And they got fortified cities. They're going to kill us all. And that's the second question. The first question is, are they going to kill me? And the second question is, are they going to kill us all? Are we going to survive? 
Is this the end of Israel? Has God brought us out of Egypt from one superpower only to kill us from hunger and thirst in this wilderness or only to send us into a new country where we're going to be decimated and destroyed? Are we going to survive as we invade? So God calls them all together. And from the tribe of Reuben, he tells them to number each other and there's 46,500 of them. From the tribe of Simeon, there's 59,300 of them. From the tribe of Gad, there's 45,650. From the tribe of Judah, there's 74,600. From the tribe of Issachar, there's 54,400. From the tribe of Zebulun, there's 57,400. And there's six more tribes to go. What is God saying to them by these numbers? He reminds them of the patriarch who's the head of each clan. He reminds them of the 12 that started out, the 12 sons of Jacob. And now from one have come 46,500. From another have come 59,300. From another have come 45,650. From another have come 74,600. From another have come 54,400. From another have come 57,400. And they say, God, can we trust you? Yeah, you pulled us out of Egypt. But now you're sending us into a fortified land with a powerful army. Are we going to all die? And God says to them, you had one forefather. And now look around you. There's 46,500. You had one forefather. Look around you. Now there's 59,300. You had one forefather, and now there's 45,630. And descendants of Judah, you had one forefather, and now there's 74,600 of you. God says, this is not the first promise. This is my second promise, this promise of land. I've already fulfilled one promise. I took 12 men, and I told them there would be so many descendants, you couldn't number them all. I've already fulfilled one promise. Surely I can fulfill a second. Now, how does that apply to us? What is God saying to us through these numbers? Let's say you're considering aligning your life with the purposes of God. Let's say you're considering not just going to school, and not just going to work, putting in your time, getting your paycheck, and going home and doing whatever you can with your spare time. Let's say every morning you get up and you're going to pray, God, find me a way to be useful to you at this school this, today. Or find me a way that I can do something small, something little for you and your purposes at work today. That's going to be a, a minor disruption in your life. And you're going to be anxious about how it's going to go and whether it's going to work and people are going to think you're crazy and it's going to fall flat, you're going to fall flat on your face and you're going to get embarrassed. Or maybe you decide you're going to change your location and you're going to take your job and you're going to go to Taiwan and work among the blue collar. Or you're going to go to China and work among corporate life and teaching there. Or you're going to go to the Middle East eventually, where Christians aren't held in high regard. And you're going to risk a fair bit of comfort 
a fair bit of security, and you have family, and you're risking on their behalf. And you're going to wonder, is God going to be with me? Or is this going to turn out to be a disaster? And God says to us, this is not the first promise I fulfilled. This is the third. I have already fulfilled the first. And then I fulfilled the second. God tells us in Numbers 1, he fulfilled the first as he calls them into the second. And then as we read later on in Scripture, we find that God fulfilled the second against insuperable odds. And so God is saying to us, as we risk something for him, can we trust him? He's already proved himself faithful twice to his people. Surely he will prove himself faithful to us. It doesn't mean that our lives will go well and easily, but it means that God will use us toward his ends. Let's consider some of the specific examples how this might work. Remember when we looked at Genesis 12 to 50 and the purposes of God there? How long did it take God to fulfill his promises of descendants? God promised Abraham innumerable descendants. How long did that take God to fulfill? How long before Abraham had innumerable descendants? Anybody remember? 400 years took God to fulfill that promise. I was talking with one of our missionaries that serves in East Asia about what was one of the more difficult things that she had to learn. And her response was that I'm probably not going to accomplish very much for God. She said, it took me five years to realize it, but life has gotten a lot more relaxed since then. It's the truth. You know, we recruit people to go overseas with the promise, make your life count for God. And, and we go overseas. I went overseas thinking my life was going to count for God, going to make some big changes, going to see some things change and dramatic events happen. Genesis 12 to 50 took God 400 years to fulfill that promise. If you disrupt your life and go overseas to align with the purposes of God into a difficult environment, you're probably not going to accomplish very much. And this text doesn't promise you, you will. God's not going to come into your life and make you special, likely. But this text does promise us that as we align our lives with the purposes of God, God will accomplish his purposes. And it may take 400 years, but we can be part of it. And it was good enough for them. And it will be good enough for us. God does accomplish his purposes, often step by step, increment by increment. But still, we can be part of it. What else did we learn from Genesis 12 to 50? You remember fallen, broken people in a broken world. You remember the theme that comes out repeatedly through Genesis 12 and 50? Their family lives were a mess. You got 
You got fathers who were afraid of being beaten up or killed, so they gave their wives away. You got brothers stealing from brothers. You got a brother who killed a brother. Is it any surprise that some of us, when we try to go overseas, we face family dysfunction in our relationship with our parents? Or we face family dysfunction in our relationship with our kids to each other? Or we face family disruption between husband and wife? Genesis 12 to 50 says, this is what happens in a broken world. And we're not spared simply because we're in the center of God's purposes. It can happen in our lives, just like it happened with Jacob and Esau. Just like it happened with Isaac and Ishmael. Just like it happened with Rachel and Leah. Or with Jacob and his parents. Esau and his parents. God will still accomplish his purposes, despite our family dysfunctions. Or consider the story of Exodus. Sometimes, sometimes God intervenes in a miraculous, dramatic way. And he pulls his people out and redeems them. And maybe we'll have the good fortune to see God intervene in our lives, in our ministry, to accomplish something spectacular, to rescue people from, oh, to rescue people from sex slavery, or to rescue people from uh, drug addiction or alcohol addiction, or to rescue people from a meaningless future. Maybe we'll see God working in our lives and ministries that way. Or maybe we'll never accomplish anything big and dramatic, but God's purposes will be achieved through his people as they labor labor faithfully. We know this because God rescued Egypt. We know this because scripture uses the rescue of Egypt to tell us that God rescued us in Christ. And what Christ did for us, he can do for others. We do have in our own background a more recent version of the Exodus story. Some of your parents, some, and some of you are here because your parents fled the communist takeover of China. You know, God delivered Israel, God delivered Israel from Egypt. But think of what God has done in China. Equally as spectacular. 49 to 51, the communists took over, and the missionaries fled. Maybe there was a million Christians at most who called themselves Christian. And everybody was worried about them. Because all the missionaries are gone. The country closes off. News is you hardly hear. And there was re-education camp. There was killings. There was starvation through economic mismanagement. And then there was the cultural revolution. More destruction and more suffering. And God accomplishes his purposes. And then there was Tiananmen. And again, despair over the brutality and the suffering of God's people in China. But you know, half of this church are converts from mainland since 1989. The world can destroy, and yet God accomplishes his purposes. 
We don't have time to go through the rest of Genesis or Exodus, Leviticus. But this is how scripture applies to our lives. It invites us not to bring God into this, you know, free spaces in our lives, but to bring our lives into line with God's purposes. And it promises us that there's one purpose of God that started when Adam and Eve sinned in Eden and started in Genesis 3, this one purpose of God that extends all the way to Revelation 21. We can be part of that. Our part may be small, and we may not see its results now. Or our part may on occasion be dramatic. But this is the promise of Scripture. That God has made promises. And he keeps his promises. And even if our part is small, his part is dramatic and big. What God is doing in this world is spreading all over the world. And in the end, God's name will be honored over all. People from every tribe and tongue and nation will come to worship him. And he invites us to be a small part of achieving that goal. The question each of us must ask is, God, with my skills and my personality and my abilities, what part can I play wherever I am or wherever I might go? Whatever I might do, or whatever I might learn to do, what part can I play in your purposes for the world? Let's pray together. Father, give us a heart to read your word and to hear through it what you're calling us to do and to be. That we might be part of your purposes as you win this world. In Jesus' name, amen.